Chris, how's the start of the semester going for you? Well, <laughs> well, well, let's see. The semester's great. Students are wonderful this semester. I have two seminars, which I don't like doing because I like to talk at people and not with people, generally speaking, but my students are awesome. So they're making it very pleasant. And a lot of the people that we're talking to uh, and have talked to turn out to be super relevant to the stuff I'm teaching. <laughs> do you I assign do, these podcasts for them? Uh, I don't assign the podcast. I assign readings related to the podcast. And then I send them the link hint hint i do have news that i want to announce it'll be old news by the time this airs but i'm excited an article that i've been working on for like two years on family dynamics in anthropology is coming out in plus one in two days so september 7th it goes live and will be available congratulations that's yeah that's coming right up thank you and then on the other hand, I broke my tooth on a potato chip. My car's broken down and I got soaked in the rain today. So yeah, semester's well-balanced. Yeah, well-balanced. I'm having a tough time getting into it. The first four weeks of classes, three of those four weeks are not full weeks due to various uh, federal and religious holidays, which makes it really hard to build a rapport with my class. Mm. So I'm struggling a little bit to get into a teaching groove when people I'm supposed to be meeting with twice a week, I only get to see once a week. So that's been my struggle. Anyway, who do we have on the show today, Chris? Well, first we should say welcome. This is Chris and Kara in the Sausage of Science. And we have Asher. Asher, is it Rosinger? It's Rossinger. Rossinger. See, I, had, uh, I listened to your article and I wasn't sure if my robotic listening device was pronouncing your name right. So we have Asher Rossinger from Penn State. That's where you are, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm at Penn State <laughs> in the Department of Biobehavioral Health. And I have a joint appointment in the Department of Anthropology as well. Nice. Really, really cool. So we, we invited Asher on because one, he's really super active on Twitter. So what I, I know, I, we know him from, from HBA, from the meetings. He does great talks on pee and things like that. He studies water insecurity, but I just remember last year, a great talk on urine. And two, as an active tweeter, he's really good at what a lot of academics are bad at. And what we're trying to do is promote more science, including promoting the work that we do. No one's going to read it if they have to have a decoder ring to find that you've put something out. And Asher does a great job of letting people know that he's got new pubs out, but he's got like one a week, it seems like. He's got yeah. like so much going on. It's really impressive. And the other thing I want to note before I forget it, speaking of family dynamics <laughs> in anthropology, you're on paternity leave. So one, congratulations. Thank you. And two, I think that's super boss that one, you got paternity leave and two, that you're advertising that you did it and challenging the the gender norms of maternity leave paternity leave and i don't know if there's a macho stigma out there about announcing you're on paternity leave but that's it's a great thing all around and i'm sure yeah, also like good on penn state for having paternity leave not every place has that so good job to them as well thanks yeah i you know i'll address that first it really was kind of a source of a little bit of anxiety to even ask 
about what the policies around parental leave, specifically paternity leave, were at Penn State. But Penn State is really family-oriented, and the specific college that I'm in, the College of Health and Human Development, I was just lucky because the dean, who has since retired, she studied for her entire research career was on work-life integration. Mm. And she spent her 10 years as a dean working to reduce the stigma associated with paternity leave and asking for it. So there was a well-established precedent for that, which I researched and asked for and was then granted. Basically, what it amounts to is teaching release and departmental obligations, but I'm still supposed to be working on research, which means I can work from home as much as I can, help with the baby, you know, changing diapers. I've become very adept at changing diapers. Definitely have some pro tips on that now. (laughs) And yeah, I think that it's really important to put it out there that, you know, men are supposed to be having a very important role in rearing children. So asking for and trying to test the bounds of what is possible to get paternity leave is important. And then when you have it, yeah, don't be afraid to say it because that is, you know, a really special time for you and your kid. And some institutions are more generous with that leave than others. And luckily Penn State is one of those institutions. Well, I applaud you as someone who floundered a bit trying to figure out how to negotiate fieldwork and basically getting by. I found myself frequently apologizing for the fact that I didn't want to go away and leave my wife and kids. It was odd. I have triplets. I had triplets through graduate school. So not only would it have been cruel for everyone, I just, I would have missed them. Well, that was one thing that I I did this summer um, was, you know, it's not just once the baby's born. It's also the last couple months of pregnancy can be very challenging. So I I delayed field work. I didn't go to the field this summer. As a result, I was supposed to go to Kenya and to Bolivia. I postponed the Bolivia trip. I'll be going in a month. But that was one of the things that when people think about, you know, pregnancy and maternity leave, it really does start before the baby's born. That last month in particular is incredibly challenging. But I'm adapting pretty well to being a new father as opposed to you know, I, I am kind of sleep deprived. And so if I say some things that don't make sense, you know, that's par for the course at this point. I've been we'll a bit of a zombie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the nice thing is that it definitely has aligned now with my corny sense of humor, my dad jokes, if you yeah. will. <laughs> now I can actually have an excuse for them and yeah. actually have one that's pretty relevant for the situation. So an epidemiologist's wife has twins. And in his excitement, he calls a priest and tells him, listen, my wife just had twins. We're so happy. The priest says, that's so great. Why don't you bring them both down on Sunday and we'll baptize them? The epidemiologist thinks for a minute and then says, no, baptize one. We'll keep the other as a control. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. I was told by uh, an anthropology professor I had as an undergrad who had twins um, not to study my children. But mm-hmm. when you have multiples, when you have any kids, it's hard, it's hard not to. You're, especially if you're attuned as we are to growth and development or energetics or uh, any of the evolutionary or gender stuff. So um, 
yeah, we we store those suckers up. They'll be using uh, those for a long time. Yeah, so that joke actually brings up, I think, a little bit about you because you have a very interesting and diverse background with the way that you approach anthropology and human biology and all of those things. And so I was wondering if you could kind of give us your origin story, how you came to this field, what inspired you early on, and kind of your journey to where you are now. Sure. I grew up in Israel, so I, I was born in the U.S., but then when I was two, we moved back to Israel where my parents had been living previously. I lived there for about seven years, so until nine. And moving back and forth from the U.S. and Israel, it really helped me develop multiple worldviews. So I grew up speaking Hebrew, speaking English, and I actually lived in one of the settlements in the West Bank, a settlement called Ariel, which was surrounded by a bunch of Arab villages as well. And so this early idea of like othering, even though I didn't understand it at the time, it definitely was very salient to me in terms of access to infrastructure and these little things that as a kid, you don't really think, why are we living on the inside of this village that's like guarded with men with automatic weapons? And then there's other villages like surrounding it. When I went to UNC Chapel Hill for undergrad, I was trying to register for classes my freshman year. And for my second semester of freshman year, I stayed up really late the night before. I I was at a party, but then I came back. And then from midnight until 3 a.m., I was working very diligently trying to organize my schedule to have just this optimal schedule. And we had this terrible system where everybody had to wake up. And at 10 a.m., you log into the registration system and you have all of your tabs open trying to register for your classes so that you get them before they fill up. And as a freshman, you register last. Well, something happened with my alarm clock and I set it for like 9.45 p.m. instead of a.m. I woke up at noon and most of the classes I wanted were full. I ended up finding an anthropology, intro to anthropology class, which fulfilled the general education requirement. I took it and I was immediately hooked. It was one of those things where all of a sudden, a lot of the ideas that I had had about different worldviews and understanding language fell into focus. They helped me understand and provide a framework for what I kind of had learned growing up and seeing things through multiple perspectives, but I hadn't previously had a way to vocalize them. Hmm. So then I added anthropology as a second major and started taking some health-related classes. I took a global health class with Mark Sorensen there. I took a historical ecology class with Carol Crumley. And I started to formulate this idea and wanting to understand more and more how humans affect the environment and then subsequently how that anthropogenic change affects human health. I took an independent class to further develop that with Carol Crumley, specifically related to water. And then you know, those ideas were kind of percolating, but they weren't formulated in any like testable way. I didn't actually do any research related to that as an undergrad. But then I was very lucky in receiving a travel scholarship from UNC after I graduated to allow me to go do independent travel. So I lived in a martial arts academy, the Kunyushan Martial Arts Academy in the Shandong province, where I trained Shaolin Kung Fu for three months, like eight to 12 hours a day. Hmm. And while we were doing that, we would also do both internal martial arts, Qigong, Tai Chi, and external martial arts. We also were nestled in the mountains. And so we would run up the mountain a bunch of times and we would meditate up there. And while I was there, 
I was really trying to figure out like, what do I want to do? I decided that I wanted to go to grad school and I was just trying to decide what programs. And since I really had a strong idea of, you know, how the environment affects health, living in China was really interesting at the time because they had very lax environmental regulations. This was in 2008, the fall of 2008. You know, on the weekends we would travel and we would come about some, you know, rivers, which were just really polluted and you could smell them because there was a lot of dumping going on. So I decided, you know, I just want to continue to pursue my earlier interests related to water and health. And I found a program at the University of Georgia that had a really strong ecological and environmental anthropology program. And within that program, Susan Tanner, who you both know as a human biologist, studies nutrition and parasite risk and incorporates environmental components into her research. So I thought, you know, this would be a really great fit for me. And I applied to work with her, and that was kind of how I got into it. They're great. And then I guess you'd spend some time with the CDC as well, right? Right. After I graduated from the PhD program, well, let me take a step back. As I was getting my PhD, one of the skill sets that I really wanted to develop and that I thought would be really advantageous was epidemiology and biostatistics. So I started taking those classes and then I ended up adding a master's in public health and epidemiology concurrent with my PhD program. As a result, I was exposed to somebody from the CDC who was in the epidemic intelligence service who came and gave a talk during one of my epidemiology classes. And I always tucked that in the back of my head. They told us how to apply. You had to have a PhD in some related field to public health along with an MPH, or you could be an MD post-residency or a veterinarian with an MPH. When I was finishing up my dissertation that last year, I applied to probably 30 jobs, hmm. you know, tenure track jobs, postdocs. And this fellowship was one of the first jobs I applied to because you had to apply almost a year before it started. And I ended up getting an interview. I contacted a lot of people that did the fellowship and got tips on you know, strategies during the interview. And I was lucky enough to be one of two anthropologists that was uh, selected to enter this two-year fellowship. There was about 80 of us. That's, That's fantastic. Cool. Um, and I guess this was not a question that I, I gave you ahead of time, but I guess I'm kind of curious from both sides, how well do you think the CDC uses anthropology in the way it implements various procedures and its various work and it analyzes, you know, whatever disease or outbreak is going on, how much do they really take in local culture and I guess anthropological concepts when attempting to, to deal with it? It's been a process of waxes and wanes, I would say, <laughs> if you look at the history of the CDC. The HIV outbreak in the early 80s was the first time that you could argue that the CDC, the WHO, really started to understand or start to appreciate the value of anthropology within a context of disease outbreak investigation. They started to see through, you know, you have to talk to people, you have to understand the communities in which people exist, in which exposures exist, to see how behaviors are modifiable. Then with the 80s, it kind of increased. And I would argue that it then started to decrease a bit. Then, as we all know, the Ebola outbreak in 2013 in West Africa hit. And that kind of revitalized the idea of, well, we really need anthropologists in our disease outbreak investigations when we're trying to stop outbreaks of contagious viruses. A lot of prominent anthropologists kind of answered that call 
who were doing field work in West African countries where Ebola was going on. I think that was probably one of the reasons that I and another medical anthropologist, Emilio Derlikov, were both selected for EIS because in 2015, because they started to, to see, wow, with Ebola, we really need to incorporate more anthropology, more anthropologists, and kind of train them in the CDC way, but also learn from them. I think that there's still room for improvement. Anytime you have an organization of that structure, people have such diverse backgrounds and training toolkits that some people will appreciate anthropology more than others. But one of the best parts of EIS and how they treat disease outbreak investigations is that they often team up people with diverse skill sets in a way that they can work off of each other's backgrounds to try to understand the totality of a problem of an outbreak. So I could come in and try to provide feedback on local customs behavior, as well as you know, statistics. And then you, I'm paired up with a OB-GYN, OBGYN, who is much more familiar with the etiology of disease, with the practical skills of doing clinical research. Yeah, that's great. It's good to know that they're aware of the benefits of that kind of collaborative approach to, to handling outbreaks and how it, it's not always going to work from one place to the next, that you have to really do look at it at an individual basis. So that's really cool. I want to uh, jump in just to reinforce another thing he said, though, which is the waxing and waning and who you talk mm -hmm. to, because I think you recently have a piece on Zika that's come out, and it sounds like you might have been with the CDC in the middle of the Zika outbreak or right before. And I had a lot of interactions with the CDC and American Samoa and can attest to the extreme variability dependent on who you talk to. But there are a lot of good anthropologists who are involved there and, and know this and are aware of it, so. Yeah, absolutely. I was, so I was deployed three times to Puerto Rico. I was at one of the first batch of people deployed to Puerto Rico for the Zika outbreak. And so I was there for 101 nights. If I ever wrote a memoir about it, it'd be 101 nights in Puerto Rico, my Zika story. <laughs> One of the things that I did as part of that, th those three deployments was we pilot tested a surveillance system to track women who were infected either with confirmed or probable Zika virus infection when they were pregnant, and then tracking them until their baby was three years of age. Mm. And so we started with just three municipalities within Puerto Rico. We then expanded to island-wide coverage. And as you know, Puerto Rico ended up having more than, I think, 4,000 confirmed or probable pregnant women with Zika virus. So that surveillance system, it started with a small Excel sheet that we were keeping tabs on, and it just really exploded as the outbreak increased on the island. That piece just came out. What journal was that in? MMWR, so the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report. Okay, we'll get a link to that on our, on our show notes because that was a really interesting piece as well. We have so many to talk about. But I know we you sent us two, so maybe we should toggle to those. Yeah, so one of the pieces you sent us is called Household Water Insecurity After a Historic Flood, Diarrhea and Dehydration in the Bolivian Amazon. And this recently came out in Social Science and Medicine. And if I can briefly say, it's about water insecurity and flooding among the Chimani. And I guess the first question we have is, we've been hearing a lot about the Chimani in the past couple of years through the HBAs. How did you come about to work with this group? 
My advisor at University of Georgia, Susan Tanner, she'd been working with Chimani since the early 2000s as part of the Chimani Amazonian panel study, which systematically collected data on Chimani living in 13 villages to produce a panel study. And she was part of it. And so she kind of sent me down there my first summer as a grad student. I took place as part of an NSF field school to both build methods, you know, work on my Spanish and be introduced to field work in the Amazon. I then went back the next year because I was able to survive it. Some people, you know, they go to the Amazon and your histamine reaction is going out of the wall. I am sensitive to mosquito bites. And so it, it was challenging, but I, I loved it. Oh. <laughs> so yeah, it, it's tough. But at the same time, it was just a really exhilarating experience. So I went back the next summer and then I developed my dissertation project to work there. And it was ideal for me. And I don't think it's ideal for everybody. I think your question really needs to match both the population and the fieldwork site because your question really necessitates variation in both your exposures, your questions of interest. So for me, it was all about trying to understand how people meet their water needs, particularly in environments where there isn't access to clean water. And what do they then do as a result? What are their strategies? How does it affect health? How does it affect their hydration status, their risk of gastrointestinal infections? And with the Chimani, I, I found an ideal field site. Great. And uh, I know when we kind of invited you to this interview, you said you had a really interesting and unexpected story involving the flood that you talk about in this paper. Do you want to set that scene for us of what happened and your experience? Sure. I went down there in July of 2013 for a year of field work, as a lot of us do. And I spent the first four or five months really getting all my permits in order, starting data collection, doing a whole first round of data collection in the two villages that I lived in, one that was close to the market, town of San Borja, and the other one that was about two days upriver, which was really far. After about four months, I had my first round of data collection. I was really feeling energized. I did more of an intensive data collection doing focal follows with people the first couple of months of data collection. And then the next two phases were going to be survey data collection and biomarker collection with the same people in both villages just going back and forth for the next like six months. Well, God laughs at those who make plans. And I had never actually done field work in Bolivia during the rainy season. So, you know, the rainy season started and it started raining and then it just kept raining and it kept raining. And my partner, Kelly, she was there with me the whole year. She took a year off from her PhD program, basically did like a in-PhD program sabbatical. Mm. So we were there and we were just like looking at each other and we're like, is this normal? Is this amount of rain actually what a rainy season is? And we would ask people and they'd be like, no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> so the rain started in it. They really didn't stop until early March. And during that time, it got to the point where River travel wasn't safe. So many of the communities were actually underwater. We had to completely halt data collection. And during that time, we tried to assist with some humanitarian aid. A lot of other researchers that worked with Shimani also did similar things. So like Ben Trumbull, who's a human biologist, he was uh, really instrumental in delivering aid to a lot of Shimani communities as well. Matt Schwartz, who's a graduate student at New Mexico. He was there doing fieldwork during the time as well. And it was kind of nice to have them there because we would hang out and be like, you know, what are you guys doing? What can we do to help out? For me, it raised an interesting research question in terms of 
how do people react to an excess of dirty water when they already are living in this, you know, water rich environment? But from a moral and ethical standpoint, should you keep doing data collection? Should you stop and try to help people in need? And so that's kind of what we did. We stopped any sort of data collection for two full months and we tried to deliver some aid. We did what we could, but it was basically just me and my wife there. So we didn't really have as many resources as, as some people. But by March, you know, the river started to go down enough that we could make it up to the far community where I was doing research. And the ecology of the river changed. People's crops were dead. And so it really changed both people's strat livelihood strategies, how they're getting food, what they're going to do in the future. All of their plantains were dead. A lot of the game, a lot of the animals in the forest drowned. Hmm. That's a huge protein source for them, which affects their diet, their hydration strategies, papaya trees. You know, people love papaya there. And that's a huge source of water. A lot of those papaya trees died as well. It just affected every facet of life. Ben Trumbull and his team, they have a paper out on looking at testosterone and how that was affected by the flood that just came out in physiology and behavior. And they have really interesting results that show that testosterone kind of plummeted as a result of it. I have data that shows, you know, risk of GI infections, increased fungal infections, because people are just walking around in mud and mush. Mm -hmm. uh, their houses have a ton of fungus in them because they were just in standing water. And then risk of dehydration went up a, a lot. Wow, that's fascinating. It reminds me of our talk with Bill Leonard when not serendipitously, mm -hmm. but the Soviet collapse in the middle of field work and how one, you're there. So it's unethical to just be like, yes, your world's in turmoil. What a great research opportunity for me. Yeah. So you have to balance helping. Fortunately, you're there and you can be of help and you probably have resources they don't have. So it behooves us to do that. But then it also utterly transforms our research and you end up with some really amazing and fascinating contrasts. And it just makes me think about Katrina and, and the types of research that have been done around that. The circumstances here in the developed U.S. when a tornado destroyed my town and seeing people in a similar state of just distress. And I, I can imagine their testosterone. I, I remember my own <laughs> feeling. If you measured my testosterone as a soft-handed academic, I felt utterly useless. It was very, I guess, emasculating in that sense. I didn't have a purpose. So that's, that's really fascinating stuff. And one of the uh, long-term implications for me that I started thinking more and more about was how does the shock of having your water, you know, it's already polluted, but then a lot of maybe some of the more improved sources like your wells, how does that affect your trust of water? How does that affect whether you will use that same water source when the trust of the water source will return? And that has implications for the U.S. as well. One of the other things I've been studying here in the U.S. is trying to understand where people are getting their plain water and how is that then related to health disparities and distrust of municipal water supply based mm -hmm. on existing environmental injustice. And yeah, with the Flint water crisis, that is one of those things where you have a population that's economically marginalized. And in Flint, Michigan, it's a lot of low-income minority populations that are being discriminated against. They don't have a voice. And then as people see this going on, and there's a ton of media coverage, 
how does that media coverage affect trust levels of tap water sources throughout the country? And where does that fluctuate between populations in the United States? Hmm. That's fascinating. I, I never, I don't think I ever actually considered the idea of trust in water, especially municipal water, but the Flint, uh, I'm from Michigan. And so I, I fully understand that. And it's, it's an interesting perspective. Uh, I'm also curious, um, going back to the Chimani a little bit, what sort of behavioral coping mechanisms did you witness in response to this really massive flood? What were people doing to try to work through it? One of the primary things that they did was kind of retreat deeper into the old growth forest. So anywhere that there, were, there was higher land that was dry, they made temporary homes. They went and lived in their fields sometimes or in the forest. They switched their water sources to ones that they perceived were cleaner, but at the same time, they weren't doing as much water purification as you might imagine. One of the issues, you know, boiling your water when all of the, the wood is wet is a challenge, um, even though, you know, they cook over open flames. So they primarily just would switch water sources as much as possible and then let sediment filter in their water. But there, there is a real breakdown of resources available to them. How long does that period last from, you know, the, the flood reaching its peak to when it recedes? How long do you think until kind of, I can't say full recovery, because my guess is it's still ongoing, but things start getting a little bit more back to normal and clean water is more reliable? It's tough to say. One of the issues with the flood was that the ecology of the river changed. So in some places it became shallower. Mm -hmm. And as a result, there were subsequent floods into villages downriver that, you know, continues to affect the water sources. But Chimani rely a lot on the river for their water. And there isn't as much boiling and using like chlorine to filter it. Mm -hmm. So that water is never really clean. But they, even though they have really high levels of intestinal parasites, a lot of people don't have explicit symptoms all the time, mm -hmm. as I would if I drank that water. Interesting. So you, you, sent, you were kind enough to send us a preview of a AJHB toolkit paper on using big data. And I know you did a breakout session last year about this. So I'd love to hear, well, just if you could just start us off with sort of the goal here. The goal of the paper is to try to introduce the idea of using secondary data sets or existing data sets and using secondary analyses of those existing data sets within the human biology community, explicitly because human biologists oftentimes ask questions in really unique ways. And you can test hypotheses that with greater power than you might with your own data, with existing data sets. And this isn't to say that a lot of human biologists don't already do this. It's just really making the point that compared to many allied fields who almost exclusively sometimes utilize secondary data sets, human biologists can have this additional resource, both for graduate students in developing, say, a master's thesis. So let me just give an example of one secondary data set. So like the demographic and health surveys, DHS, they have data on 60 or 70 low and middle income countries. Anthropologists and human biologists work in a lot of those countries. One of the ideas then is that people can use that data either to give a baseline of like prevalence of existing health conditions 
in those countries and compare them to the data that you're collecting with a more fine grain approach. Mm -hmm. You can use that data for additional publications, which is helpful for both graduate students and faculty because the data is already collected, it's there. You just really have to identify a research question that's appropriate to use with the secondary data set. That, let me go ahead and say, so I'm writing this paper alongside Gillian Ice, who's also a human biologist. We, we did this uh, breakout session a couple of years ago, and we pitched the idea to Tom McDade, who's the editor of Methods, the toolkit, and he said, yeah, go ahead, write it. So we're just making final edits and we'll be submitting it soon. So hopefully that comes out sometime in 2019. But I think that secondary data sets are extremely underutilized within the human biology community, but they are becoming more and increasingly utilized. Like if you think back to last year's HBAs, there were several presentations that either presented exclusively on secondary data sets like in Haines, the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, or DHS. So uh, Jason DeCaro gave a presentation either using a single country site from DHS or trying to lump, you know, 60 or 70 countries together. So Daniel Harushka, he's really big into doing this. Alex Brewis, Craig Hadley, Corey Sparks. A lot of human biologists are quantitatively inclined. And so they're analyzing these data sets. But we think there's way more data than people know is out there. There are data repositories where you can search for data sets. And then we highlight 13 or 15 really ideal data sets for human biologists to kind of explore either with longitudinal data or just large scale serial cross-sectional data. I want to highlight how varied the data are that are in some of these sites. I went down a hole. It was really exciting because while your piece draws on your research, what I wanted to see is if the varying subjects that human biologists study, for instance, I study on one hand tattoos, on the other hand religion. I have students who study drug use and are interested in psychedelics and ethnomedicine. So I actually started, I went to the one, uh, I forget the name of it, at NASDA. the University of Michigan. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, that repository which is one that I had used for, for my own data set. And every single keyword search that I did, I found some really cool data sets to play with. So it was exciting. I, I lost my whole weekend <laughs> pulling, pulling up SPSS files and nerding out. It was amazing. Well, that's the risk too, like getting overwhelmed with too much data. So it really needs to be targeted when people are searching for a data set. Having a question in mind, not just trying to data mine, but have a question in mind and then searching for an appropriate data set that can answer the question. I think it's really important to bring this up, especially for early grad students that might be listening to this, that in a state of contracting funding, which we are in, and I don't think it's going to get any better anytime soon, using these freely available big data sets is a really helpful way to get good work out and do so on a very slim, if zero dollar budget, uh, which is going to be in higher and higher demand now as it gets more competitive with less money to go around. Absolutely. And I would also like to highlight that there are several funding mechanisms for analyzing existing data. So the National Institutes of Health, a lot of their different sections actually have grants specifically designed for 
the analysis of existing data sets. Hmm. That's great to know. Also, as our time is now quickly ticking down, just a couple more questions. So Chris said kind of at the top of this interview, you are insanely prolific. Like you have papers cranking out at a dizzying rate. And with a lot of different collaborators, I want to add. Yeah. And so we're just kind of wondering what tips you might have for people who are looking to increase their, you know, publication output. How do you do it? And what can you say to grad students and, and faculty even? And, and that network. I'm really interested in that aspect as well. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't say I'm insanely productive. I would say that one of the things that drives me is just being really curious and excitable and then having a really strong focus once I hone in on a research question, an idea, and it's almost an obsession where I have to know the answer. And that all kind of goes back to training really rigorous training in epidemiology and statistics econometrics in which I kind of look through research questions or like think through research questions by, you know, I read a lot of papers and then by reading, I then think, oh man, what if I ask this either, you know, follow-up question or, you know, tangential question and knowing how to do the analysis in a way that is appropriate. And then, you know, cranking out the analyses in terms of the diverse set of collaborators, you know, I, I agree. I think that one of the best things about being an academic is that we're all people. Um, and so I'm very social and I love, you know, just like shooting the shit with people. So as a result of that, you oftentimes find opportunities in which your research questions are aligned in a way where like I study hydration status and you study sleep, well, how does sleep affect hydration status? And that's a funny story. One of the tips that I would give people when they're on the job market and doing interviews or when they're going and giving talks at different institutions, don't just pay lip service to other people's research interests. When I was on the job market and I was doing interviews, I looked into absolutely everybody that I interviewed with, and I was legitimately interested in understanding how my research may connect with them. When I was interviewing here at Penn State in the Department of Biobehavioral Health, I had a really great breakfast with Anne-Marie Chang, who studies sleep, and she kind of posed this question about sleep and hydration. I was like, you know what? I haven't really thought about that. Well, you know what? Now I'm here, and we've actually got a paper that is about to be resubmitted to the journal Sleep that looks at how sleep affects hydration status both in the US and with the Chinese cohort. And so by drawing on multiple collaborations, the other person on that paper, two people are also at Penn State, and one of them's in the nutrition department, and I interviewed with him as well. So it was like kind of just like bringing all these people together by diversifying your network, you're really able to kind of play off of other people's strengths and they can kind of introduce you to different methodologies, research questions in a way that can keep you really intellectually engaged. That's great advice. And I hope everyone listening to this will definitely take it to heart and to not be afraid to do that, shooting the shit and actually talk to people. We're all a lot nicer than I think students might assume. <laughs> so please come and talk to all of us. That's a theme we've, we've, we've noted in previous podcasts. So thank you yeah. for, for so eloquently stating, restating that. 
And then I guess to end it, so you do have this new baby, at this point, born a little over a month ago. And so this question is going to be answered in any way you like, but what's next for you? So like, what's the next five, six months to a year gonna look like? What do you have on the horizon? Aside from changing a lot of poopy diapers, <laughs> I would say that uh, what's next for me is finishing up a bunch of papers and then I have a new C grant that I got from Penn State to look at the relationship between household water insecurity, stress, and hydration. Mm -hmm. And that's within this context of this big collaboration led by Sarah Young at Northwestern called HWISE, or the Household Water Insecurity Experiences Scale. So it's this large consortium of about, you know, at this point, 29 different sites around the world in which we're trying to cross-culturally validate this measure of household water insecurity. I collected data from Bolivia for this process, and we have a lot of different papers that are coming out. Amber Wudich and Alex Brewis, Alex, who was just on your podcast a little while ago, they have been thinking a lot about water sharing. And so I've kind of started to, I helped out with the analyses on a paper that will be coming out next year, looking at water sharing as a coping mechanism in water insecure sites. And we're gonna be looking at water sharing as this coping strategy across all of the different sites and then how that relates to seasonality and need and uh, socioeconomic status to try to understand, you know, how does this kind of invisible coping strategy, just household to household water transfers, how do people use that? Because food sharing is this huge topic of inquiry within anthropology. People are always trying to understand food transfers people don't, haven't really looked at water sharing in the, same, in the same way. So that's one avenue that we're kind of looking at. And then for me, it's trying to wrap that in now to stress and hydration in Bolivia and then in Kenya. So I'll be working in Lake Turkana, Kenya with an agro-pastoralist population called the Dasnich that I've been working there for a couple of years now alongside Herman Ponser. Awesome. That's great. So I guess this last bit, Asher, for people who might want to get in touch with you or want to learn more about your work, what's the best way to, to do that? So you can email me at arossinger at psu.edu. And I will just put out a plug that I'm recruiting a graduate student for next year. So applying this cycle for the PhD program in biobehavioral health. It's a five-year fully funded position to join my water and health lab. So if you're interested or if you're a PI and you have a really great undergraduate student who's finishing up or an MPH student who's interested in getting a PhD in biobehavioral health, please email me and contact me. Very cool. And you also are super active on Twitter. What's your handle? My handle, I think, is Asher <laughs> underscore Rossinger. <laughs> As we all have to look up our Twitter handles again. Chris, how about you? Chris underscore L-Y. And I'm at Kara Akabak. I keep mine pretty easy. Asher, thank you so much. It was wonderful talking to you. I'm pretty sure we'll have to have you on again to talk about all the exciting things you have coming up. Thank you and, and good luck with poopy diapers and all the papers you have coming out. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It was really a lot of fun. We've been the Sausage of Science for the Publicity Committee. Public oh, relations. relations? Oh, we never oh get it right. Gosh. Of the Human Biology Association. <laughs> we'll talk right. to you soon.